so much of this business is is based upon um, having a differentiator. You know, what makes you different than the next person and why is that important to the clients that you're working with? Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have Evan Walsh, who is the head of the Walsh team, a William Ravis real estate group. He's a real estate professional. Hey, Evan, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Great to see you again. Great to see you as well. You look great. The house looks great. I love seeing the inside of your house virtually right now. So Evan, tell us about your new role at the Walsh team. Um, thanks, Mark. Great to see you. The uh, basically what we're doing is um, my parents, you know, as as you know, my parents have been in the business for just about 30 years. And uh, they have they have seen me fit to lead as uh, as we should say. So, um, you know, I've been in the business now for 15 myself. And, uh, you know, basically, it's it's uh, they're going to step into more of an advisory role. And uh, they're kind of letting the young, fresh blood in to, uh, you know, take the reins and uh, kind of lead us into the next millennium, <laughs> if you will. So tell us about that. So 2006, you jumped in? Yeah, 2006, I got into the business. Uh, it was sort of an easy decision just based on the fact that, you know, both my parents were in it and, you know, I was kind of living and breathing it, hearing it every day and whatnot. And um, at the time I was working at Wayland Country Club, I was an aspiring golf pro. And um, basically there was uh, what we called the Tiger Woods effect uh, for you know young golf professionals at the time. And that was, he was so unbelievably popular that um, he basically changed all the parameters for getting in as a PGA pro. And, um, and there was just, there was an abundance of people going after, you know, trying to become pros. So Basically, what they were doing is uh, modifying the tenure requirements, and so I had already put in like six to seven years at the uh, at the golf course, and they were then requiring you to start from scratch. And I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, basically all of that kind of uh, out the window. Um, while at the time, my parents were absolutely crushing it in the real estate game, you know, and had been for over you know almost two decades. So. Uh, it was a very easy decision looking at them and, and seeing how, how well they were doing. And, uh, you know, I was always a sales guy, marketing, sort of creative. And uh, it just made a lot of sense to, you know, kind of segue into the real estate world and, and help them out and build their web presence and, and all of that stuff. So I really got to get my hands in there and, and figure out how the website worked. And then, you know, with the advent of social media, uh, really, Facebook in 2008. I was like, "Whoa, this is this is revolutionary. This is going to bring our our real estate business to the next level." And uh, you know, so far, so good. So it's been um, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster because, as you know, the market crashed in uh, 2008, 2009. And uh, nice, we nice thing is we've been on a slow incline, um, and obviously, the last few years have been like out of this world. So. Uh, we're in a very good place right now, positioned well for the future. Well, tell us about that. So where do you see the future of the Walsh team? 
Well, future of the Walsh team is we are on to uh, bigger and better things. We're working really hard to develop and build our builder relationships. Um, you know, new construction is one of the you know core principles of of what we do. It's one of the uh, probably the most, I would say, one of the biggest elements of our business is, is working with and developing relationships with quality builders in the uh, Metro West area. So um, that's really what our focus is. And then obviously, um, you know, also helping residential families. Um, we do touch into commercial just a little bit, but more or less looking for, you know, different projects and opportunities for builders and developers and that kind of thing. But um, you know, I think that uh, years ago, I always wanted to have a big team. And now I'm finding that it is more important to have better quality people and maybe kind of, you know, bring the reins in a little bit. Um, and right now, I just I have a couple of unbelievably awesome teammates um, that, you know, I really couldn't we couldn't do what we do as well as we do it without them. So um, you know, we're, we're in the process of building that with some really great and key people. Uh, like I said, my parents are in that they're still working, but they're in, you know, more of an advisory role, which is great to get their years of input and, uh, and help. So we're, uh, we're, we're really excited about the future. It's bright. And, um, right now we're, we're doing really, really well. So no, no complaints. That's awesome. So let's talk about that. The builder client base, what are you seeing for new construction and what do you see as, obstacles to new construction and and what do you see in the next uh, three to five years for construction? Well, uh, I think the most important thing to factor in right now with most builders is just finding land and opportunities to build. Um, you know, as you know, just with residential real estate in general, inventory is at a historic low. Um, so finding opportunities becomes increasingly more challenging. Um, and the other thing that's happening is because inventory is low, builders are now often competing with, you know, first time home buyers in a lot of cases and other cash offers, which in a lot of cases gives them a leg up. So um, builders don't have as many advantages, uh, you know, being a cash buyer because there's so many cash buyers out there right now. So our challenge is, you know, trying to identify and locate different opportunities for them. So that is, that's really sort of the challenge. Um, I, what I, what I'm loving is that we are seeing some really cool and more modern designs, uh, coming into play. Um, the style is, is really kind of coming up a notch and, uh, there's, it's sort of, we're, I feel like we're in a, a little bit of a transitional element, um, or, or focus when you look at, sort of the different towns that we work in um, and you see sort of like where these builders are going. A lot of them are, are trying to tie in sort of that old world, traditional, maybe sort of an antique vibe along with uh, more modern touches and, and stuff like that. So I think the sky is the limit in terms of what these guys are doing and envisioning and, uh, you know, being part of that process and, and helping them kind of decide what works well in, in a particular town or community um, man, that is, that's probably the most fun of, of all of it, you know, really getting in there and, and helping with design and all that. So now are you seeing, uh, more subdivisions where they're accessing, uh, acres of land, or are you seeing them going after a distressed or of, a, a value add property and, and, and rehabbing it? There is so little land left available um, unless you move further west. And, uh, you know, being in Metro West, which is 
roughly, you know, depending on which town you're in, 30 minutes west of Boston, um, there isn't many opportunities for subdivisions. Um, the only subdivisions that we tend to come across is, you know, where you can buy two lots side by side. And if you have the right requirements, maybe converting it into three. Um, you know, that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the angle that we're taking around here. Big land acquisitions are just really hard to come by. And, uh, you know, you tend to have to move a little bit west. But even like if you're going out towards Worcester, even those areas are just getting, you know, big time development opportunities and stuff like that. Just not an area that we, we deal in, but that's kind of where you have to go in order to find some of those larger land deals. Now, has the, the, has the um, supply chain and the cost of lumber slowed, slowed your folks down a little bit? Um, I think that was a huge concern last year, you know, kind of not really knowing where, where things were going. I will tell you that um, the supply chain, you know, is definitely still a concern, mostly with appliances, um, you know, where people are, you're having to wait sometimes or getting a two to three month delay on, on some of the appliances that you're ordering. Um, lumber prices have come down quite a bit. So um, there isn't as much of that. That was probably about a, I would say a six month uh, there was a huge increase for about six months where it did slow things down, um, you know, kind of change the whole pricing scale and all that. But um, those prices are kind of getting back to normal, depending on what it is you're looking for. And um, supply chains, uh, you know, they're getting loosened up a little bit, but still it's, it's a problem. Um, and having things arrive on time and parts and all that, you know, is, uh, is, is, has been delayed. So. So there's a high demand for new construction because there's a high demand for product, but yet in short supply to find those. So how are you helping those builders find those opportunities? Basically, we're, we're leaving no stone unturned. Basically, what we're doing is uh, we're reaching out to you know, different homeowners. We're trying to identify um, opportunities, and opportunities can be in in the form of, you know, we look at GIS maps, we try to find properties that may have, you know, additional lots um, or, you know, land where they could potentially subdivide. Um, and really there's, 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 no, there's no right way to go about it. A lot of it is just being connected and, uh, you know, having been in the business as long as I have, you hear a lot of chatter and about, you know, different people. A lot of times people will come to us with opportunities, you know, um, different agents and different communities. They know that we work heavily with builders, and so they'll oftentimes come to us. Um, an agent actually uh, presented me with an opportunity. She wasn't helping this particular buyer, but she knew I do a lot of the new construction. And, uh, you know, she, she wanted to set me up with this uh, potential buyer and, and knew that we have some off-market stuff. So, um, you know, a lot of it is just kind of the scuttlebutt that you hear and, you know, trying to make connections and make matches and, uh, you know, kind of digging into what might be out there. That's the only way you can really identify these opportunities that aren't abundant at the moment. So, And with these opportunities, sometimes you're seeing some distress, right? So have you seen sure. some of that starting to come back? And do you have any examples of some of the ones that you've seen in the past? Yeah. Are you referring to when you say distressed, distressed properties in terms of uh, flipping opportunities and stuff like that? Or, or for a builder to take down and, and create a, a, a new construction product for somebody else? Yeah. So, I mean, that's because the land isn't really available. Teardowns and knockdowns um, are kind of, you know, the way that you have to go. 
but there are a lot of restrictions, as you know, um, in different towns with historic regulations, and obviously you've got wetland setbacks and um, you know different frontage requirements and all that. So, you know, it's nothing is easy right now. And and the nice thing is when you do have a, a good amount of land, you know, you work with what you have and you figure out what you can do there. Um, and very much the same thing with a knockdown or a teardown. The problem is that, you know, a lot of these different towns and cities have regulations that prevent you from doing a lot of the things that you may want to do. Um, and some of that is good and some of that is bad. Some is, you know, to kind of stay within um, sort of style and keeping with, you know, what, what looks good in the area. Um, but it's been a tough, it's been a tough road for the builders, you know, trying to kind of make changes and, and go along, um, you know, with some of these town requirements. But Flipping is also, you know, kind of taken on a new life now, and a lot of builders are doing it because other opportunities don't exist. Um, I'm doing a really great project right now. We actually just put it under agreement in Millis, Massachusetts, where um, a kid I went to high school with, a uh, great builder, he actually did my house. Um, he bought an antique and uh, basically went through and, and restored the entire thing um, and just basically brought this beautiful old house back to life. And, uh, you know, we found a, a great set of buyers for it. They're super excited about living there. And um, so those are, those are the types of opportunities that you just kind of have to, you find the right match for the right builder or the right person. And, uh, you know, and that's what we do. So. so you keep on grinding. Let me ask you this. Um, <laughs> the towns, have they become more flexible and open knowing that the housing stock is so limited? Are they being more flexible with the builders? You wish you wish that was the case, but that uh, no. Um, if anything, towns have actually become a little bit more difficult. And it, look, every every town, every area is different. But uh, where I'm working, most of the towns have it's become more difficult to build. Um, where they're cha changing some of the zoning uh, regulations and requirements, and they're changing some of the um, you know the various wetlands and setbacks and stuff. So. Those types of things are, are becoming a little bit more of a hindrance where, you know, I'll tell you the <laughs> part of the, the biggest problem is what is deemed historic. Um, you know, in some towns, they may, it may be like a, a 50 year look back in some cases, which is just absurd. Um, and then in other cases, uh, you know, I mean, find me a, a beautiful historic split level, you know, I mean, right. <laughs> it just doesn't exist um and then you know other towns it's like 75 years and other towns it's 100 and um if you fall if you don't fall in that parameter then there's a you typically a one-year moratorium on taking that house down um, and that is done intentionally to discourage development and uh, you know basically they want to kind of keep sort of that old world feel and charm which i totally understand i you know, have basically I live in an antique myself and, uh, you know, uh, I grew up with antiques. So yeah, I totally understand. But if builders can't, uh, if builders can't build new houses, then people are going to be left with, you know, just kind of like one, one thing. So I just think that regulations should be lightened up, especially where there's a housing shortage, things shouldn't be more difficult, you know? Right. So, so when you say a one year moratorium, you're saying they once they purchase it, they have to own it for a year before they can do anything with it. Correct. Yep. So and that is that's done intentionally to, you know, prevent a, a builder or developer 
from going in and just knocking it down, you know, immediately. So the historic commission will typically get involved and, and they'll, you know, they'll kind of look to see if there are any historical elements that are worth preserving or keeping. Um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes it can come down to simply the type of beam that they used in the basement for the original frame. Um, you know, and so it, it can get a little bit, it can get a little bit tricky and it really kind of depends on how the, the people in the historic uh, commission are feeling that particular day. So, um, anyway, that's interesting. Now you had a recent, uh, listing that went for an exorbitant amount of money, correct? Tell us about that. It, yeah, it was, um, it was sort of the crown jewel, if you will, of, okay. of, of our, the family career, if you will. Um, so 18 Walpole street in Dover, it was, um, it's basically, it's the second highest, uh, highest priced house to ever sell in Metro West. Um, in the, I, well, actually, I'm sorry, second highest price, uh, to sell in the last five years in Metro West. And it is the highest to ever sell in Dover. Uh, so we have the record in Dover and, uh, we actually doubled the last highest sale, which was six and a half. So um, I will tell you, it was a property unlike anything you've ever seen. It was an absolutely perfect blend of, you know, luxury, um, elegance, and it tied in so well with the, with the land and the surroundings. Um, it was a 21-acre estate, and 17 of those acres were in a private land trust. Um, so it was just a gorgeous open pasture. Um, the actual, the, the former owner actually grew up on a farm in Minnesota and, uh, and he had cattle on his, on his family farm. So one of the things that he wanted to do was, uh, you know, kind of have that same feel um, on, his, on his private estate. And so they had eight head of cattle for a while and uh, just an absolutely spectacular house. Um, the really cool thing about it was that I grew up in the neighborhood behind where that house was. And um, before he bought it, there was a, uh, you know, it was, a, uh, it was an old family farm. And, and so we used to play in the fields and stuff when we were kids and we'd sneak over there. So uh, actually, it's funny, there was a, um, there's a pond on site. And uh, when uh, old Mrs. Hellowell um, was sipping her coffee, we would sneak into the pond and we'd try to fish and catch fish out of the pond when she wasn't looking. <laughs> we never caught anything. So I don't actually know if there were fish in there, but, uh, we tried, we tried like, so. I love anyway, it. Um, I love it. That's a great, yes. great story about the local thread that, uh, real estate really weaves. Yep, absolutely. And, uh, one other really interesting thing with that house too is, um, it went viral uh, for kind of a, a funny reason. I don't know if uh, if you heard about this or no. not. But so because this um, because this property was um, basically it was it was considered sort of a gentleman's farm, if you will. Uh, Seventeen acres uh, where they had the local CSA come in and actually farm, you know, the land, um, and uh, they had this beautiful, unbelievable root cellar um, that was located essentially under uh, this beautiful carriage house. And um, when we were when we were taking the photos for the property, we wanted to kind of sell the element that, you know, farm to table your own, you know, produce and root vegetables grown on your property, have your private chef, you know, have your chef, you know, cook all this stuff. And uh, so we took a picture of the root cellar. Um, and at the time, they had just had a potato harvest. So there were there were probably 100,000 potatoes in the root cellar. And um, it, it just looked incredible. So 
somebody had sent the listing to Zillow Gone Wild, which is a, uh, a big uh, social media hype site and whatnot. And they showcase unique and interesting properties that may have like crazy things or weird things or wacky things um, and interesting things. And uh, so anyway, when this, when this made it to Zillow Gone Wild, it just literally took the internet over by storm. And so the potato shed, as it's, as it's uh, named, um, is now world famous. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of a, a really interesting twist on, on how real estate works. So if you're, if you're looking for something fun to do, uh, look up the potato shed on any of your social media platforms. It's, oh, that's, uh, it's pretty that's, funny stuff. That's awesome because I know you're very much um, a proponent of social media. So that must, that must have been great to know that you had something go viral like that. Yeah, that was, that was great. And, uh, you know, trying to get people to understand there's really been a shift in how we do business and market. Um, and, and Instagram, you know, TikTok, uh, all these different mediums are, are really essential and effective tools for marketing homes, uh, even more so than Facebook. Um, so anyway, it's, it's sort of like the latest, hottest, trendiest, you know, however you can sort of stay in front of people. Um, you know, that's, that's really what's important. Speaking of Zillow, what do you think about them stepping away from, uh, their, their buying and, and, uh, home flipping program? You know, I've heard, um, <laughs> I've heard some conspiracy theories as to what that, you know, what, what that's all about. Uh, it, you know, I think it's, let's put it this way. I think that real estate is a really difficult endeavor. I think that uh, real estate, generally speaking, is local. And I think that you really need to rely on the people and the professionals that work in your local industry. So what I guess what I would say is that it's really difficult to automate that process. And there's so much local knowledge that comes into play that I just don't know how a big company can, you know, affect, have an effective strategy to, to do real estate like we do it on a day-to-day -day basis. And this is taking nothing away from what they do. I just think that it didn't work. And, you know, perhaps it's, uh, it's best left in the hands of the local professionals who live it and breathe it every day. So that's kind of what I would say on that. I can't agree with you more because, you know, it's such a relationship-based business. They're great at what they do. They evaluate and estimate values on properties. And, you know, sometimes you think you can expand that knowledge into something else, but there's a huge human element to the actual tangible asset of real estate that right. I think they underestimated. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I mean, look, they're, they've been around for a long time. I think they have, you know, long-term plans and goals and maybe this was their sort of large scale test marketing. I don't know. Uh, but I think, you know, I hope one thing was proven and that is, you know, there is a significant value to having local professionals uh, working on your behalf, doing the digging, doing all of that stuff that we do every day, you know, every hour of the day. So uh, and, and and simply talking to the other side of the human being in the transaction, right? I mean, yep. you know, you can't automate, you can't algorithm through a purchase transaction. There's too many human beings involved. And I think that really kind of nailed the coffin shut on whether or not Zillow is going to take over the real estate industry because it is so relationship-based. So, you know, I've worked with you for quite a while, um, and I think you'll agree communication is really the key, you know? So if 
if you don't have those relationships, if you don't, if you're not able to communicate effectively, then I think a lot of um, a lot of what we do can get lost and missed, and ultimately the uh, consumer does not win in that in that you know situation or the the seller as it may be. So um, communication is the key. <laughs> always is, always will be. So so Evan, I know you're you're very very focused on charitable endeavors as well, and I know there's one near and dear to your heart because you are a cancer survivor. First and foremost, how are you doing? Uh, doing awesome, by the way. Um, I am just about in February. Uh, I will be five years cancer free. Wow! Um, and that is uh, that's a pretty pretty awesome awesome thing to be able to, uh, to tell people. So I'm not there yet, but uh, but we're it's coming up close. And um, so yeah, basically um, five just just about five years ago, I was diagnosed with stage three bladder cancer. Um, which was, you know, arguably the uh, most difficult, darkest, and hardest moment of my life. Um, you know, and I had, uh, basically, we had a one-year-old at home, and uh, my wife had to go in for a hip replacement. It was just, I mean, the world was was seemingly falling apart. Um, and, uh, you know, there were the few bright spots were our friends and our family that, you know, came to our support. Uh, people like you who sent us, um, you know, great gifts and stuff that kind of you know, just give you whatever positivity you can in the, these sort of darkest moments of your of your life uh, are so important. So um, I've done a lot of charity work for um, you know our company William Ravis, and they have uh, they've supported the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation, um, and then also this past or the past two years we've also done some work for uh, Dana Farber. So um, having been through what I've been through and having, you know, seen people going through chemo and, uh, you know, just, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously a very, very important thing in my life and something that I, I want to try to give back as much as I can, because I've had a, uh, sort of a positive outcome to it. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, again, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, you don't realize, um, you know, the, you don't realize the power of prayer. You don't realize, um, you know, how how meaningful your relationships are with the people that either you work with or are friends with and stuff like that. So, um, you know, to be able to give back in any kind of way and make some kind of impact is is really, um, you know, a focal point of 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 what I like to do when I'm not working and I'm not, you know, uh, with family. So anything I can do to support, you know, cancer research and and uh, try and find a cure for this disease is is my number one goal. So. Cool. Thank you. So Evan, I know that the sales that you're dealing with are usually a long sales process. You know, when you're talking to builders, you're very patient, but you're also very proactive. So what would you say to somebody who is getting ready to put their house on the market? Maybe they're preparing for the spring or they're actually preparing for a shorter term uh, launch than that. What would, what would the first thing and, and the next thing after that be? Yeah, so I, I think the the single most important thing that you can do as an agent, and this is something that you know kind of took years to really figure out. Uh, the most important thing you can do as an agent is listen. Um, you need to understand what what people's challenges are. You need to understand what their desires are. You need to try and figure out you know best timing, best approach, things like that. But 
One of the things that we get asked all the time, and it's something that we have a lot of fun with um, in trying to figure out and help and, and whatnot is everybody wants to know, you know, what do I need to do before I sell my house? Do I need to stage it? Do I need to paint it? Do I need to, you know, and there is, I mean, we have, we have a list um, that we're sending out basically every, every season in the winter, kind of prepping people to uh, get their house ready for the spring market. And, you know, as most people know, and maybe some don't know, the spring market generally, um, at least historically, always brings the highest prices, always brings out the most buyers and stuff like that. So in that moment, you want to make sure that your property is, you know, a shining star amongst the other properties that are out there. So one of the things that we bring to our clients is we want to put their house in the best position to sell. That comes from doing different things to get the house ready, it comes down to pricing, and then it comes down to our marketing strategy and what we're going to do. So we love to sit down with, with sellers and talk about the different things that they can do. And, and a lot of the times it's just, it's sort of, you know, simple things that they may not think of. Um, one really important element that we like to talk to uh, sellers about is doing a pre-sale home inspection. Um, the pre-sale home inspection can alert you to problems that you don't know exist. And why would you want to wait until the sale is consummated to, you know, find out that there's a problem and then, you know, the deal falls apart and it's just a nightmare for everybody. So we like to be proactive about a lot of these things and, um, having a pre-sale home inspection gives you an opportunity to fix any problems, uh, know of, you know, any issues that might prevent you from going on the market ahead of time. And it has been probably one of our most effective tools, I would say for, you know, probably the last five years when we really started to, you know, believe in it and try it and stuff like that. So um, the other nice thing too, is that, you know, we have some really great home inspectors that we work with. Um, that we know, that we trust, we've worked with them for years. And so to be able to get our own people in there um, before the sale happens and you really know what you're dealing with is just so unbelievably advantageous to a seller. Um, and oftentimes it saves them a tremendous amount of money. Um, one of the problems that comes up when you're in the transaction is people don't know what stuff costs. And so the buyer will generally use that to their advantage, you know, thinking, well, geez, you know, I got a contractor is going to come out and they overprice a lot of things that may not cost as much as you think. So to have that pre-sale home inspection, to get a contractor out ahead of time to either fix the problem so it's gone, or at least have a quote so that you, you know, you have an, an accurate assessment of, of what needs to be done. Um, those are the real, that, that's like probably the most important thing that we do, um, that puts our clients in the best position to succeed and, and get the, the highest and best price. So, um, there's plenty of other things, but that's one of them. That it's great advice too, because if you think about it, most home inspectors are working off of a similar checklist, right? So if the one home inspector dives in deeply, through that checklist, the next person who comes in is going to identify the same issues. So what you say is either you fix them, or at least you know in advance exactly what you're going to be looking at. Proactivity is right. so, so, so essential. So Evan, let me ask you this. Buyer, builder, seller, amazing experience. They get ready to sit down and write up a review. What are they going to say about Evan Walsh and the Walsh team? They're going to say nobody worked harder. 
Nobody worked smarter. Nobody understood our needs and desires and the market better than Evan Walsh and or anyone else, I would say, on the Walsh team. Um, you know, we pride ourselves in uh, our professionalism. We pride ourselves on our knowledge and experience. And, you know, everything that we do is client focused and client based so that we want to put our clients, whether they're buyers or sellers, in the very best position to win. Um, and that's it right there. <laughs> Hopefully that's what everyone would say. That's awesome. Now, if someone were thinking about real estate and they asked you, would you recommend me getting into real estate? What would your response be? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need any more competition. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, I, if somebody was interested in getting into real estate, I would say uh, it's more, more precautionary than anything. Um, <clears throat> nobody understands until you're in the business how much time it takes how much um, you need to learn sort of you, just by doing it, you have to learn. And, and the process is very slow. You can't just get your license and start selling real estate. It doesn't work that way. And uh, most of the problems that, um, that new agents find is they don't have the network. And if you don't have the network, then it's really difficult to find properties to sell. Um, and especially now with low inventory, you know, you could have a bevy of buyers and what are you going to do with them? You know, um, so we have, even now we have a, a, a number of buyers and we're, we're still out there like everybody else trying to identify properties before they hit the market. We've got lots of tools and no, you know, lots of great relationships. Um, it's just really challenging. So anyone that's getting into the business, look, it's an, it's an awesome, awesome field. Uh, I absolutely love what I do. I love the people that I work with. I love the people that we work for. Um, and all those relationships are really meaningful. But it is not easy. And um, unless, you know, I was fortunate I had my parents that I could sort of work, you know, under their um, guidance for the first few years until I knew what I was doing. And, uh, you know, that would be the thing is to, if you're going to get into the business, have a mentor. Um, you know, somebody that you can learn from, somebody that's going to, you know, prevent you from falling into some of the pitfalls. And, uh, and again, you know, we talk about it all the time is, is have good people in place that can help you through the process. Um, whether it's a buyer or a seller, have a great attorney, have a great mortgage broker, have great home inspectors, have great contractors. And like, those are the things that you really need to have uh, a handle on before, you know, before you can be successful in real estate, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but if somebody, if somebody's um, highly motivated and uh, they have a unique skill or quality, then, you know, that's something that you want to focus on and, you know, try to use that to your advantage. And so much of this business is, is based upon um, having a differentiator, you know, what makes you different than the next person and why is that important to the clients that you're working with and for? So, um, you know, whatever it is, find out what makes you unique and, and uh, you know, really focus on that. That's, that's what I would say. Hmm. That's great advice. That's great advice. So Evan, yeah. as you know, from listening to some of the other podcasts, we're going to get all of our guests together at some point down the future. We're going to get everyone okay. together and network together and have an event. And at that event, there will be karaoke. Oh boy! What will you? Be, <laughs> what will we count on you to sing at that event? Uh, 
man, there are so many options. Um, look, my go-to is Bob Marley. I Which? get a hard time. <laughs> I don't. I don't have one song. I. I like to think I perform all of them equally well. Nice. Um, but uh, look, I. You know, when it comes to karaoke, it's all about having fun. Um, and uh, you know, you got to get the crowd into it. So you can't just get up there and and have some weak song. You got to bring it, and you got to bring it like it is the only performance of your life. So all I'm going to say to you, Mark Stiles, is you better be ready because I'm going to bring it. I love it. I love it. Now, so as you know, I love karaoke. I love the whole stage presence, the ice breaking component of it. Now, you had something going on, if I recall. Wasn't there a karaoke for cancer that you guys were doing? We did. Unfortunately, it kind of took a back seat uh, this past year due to a variety of elements, COVID being one of them. But uh, yeah, we did a karaoke for cancer fundraising event. Um, and hopefully we're, we're going to get back on that next year. Um, and uh, basically it was um, you challenge someone. It was kind of like the ice bucket challenge. You challenge someone to do a karaoke song or perform a karaoke song. Um, and, uh, the concept was that, you know, by performing that song, you would raise donation dollars and stuff like that. But the, the best part about that whole event, and we weren't able to do it last year, um, because of the lockdowns and whatnot, is we had a big karaoke event, kind of probably similar to what you're talking about. Um, and, uh, just, you know, with lots of different fundraising things, we rented out a, a karaoke bar and it was, it was just awesome. Um, some really great performances. People came, you know, totally done up. Like, where there were some serious karaoke professionals there, um, not just myself. And uh, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was, it was awesome. So, you know, those those are the types of events that we like to uh, that we like to that we like to do. And obviously, you know, karaoke for cancer was a uh, was and is just a, another unique and, and different way of uh, raising charitable dollars for, you know, something that I, I care so deeply about. So. Well, I, at, for one, I'm encouraging you to get that back going on again and whatever I can do to help, please let me know because uh, again, cancer is near and dear to my heart. And so is karaoke. Now the most, well, we're always question. looking, go ahead. Sorry. I, we were, we're always looking for performance performers. And with the uh, deep baritone uh, vocals that you would provide, I can uh, I can only anticipate it would be nothing but stellar. Oh, it's not stellar, but it is fun. I will say that. <laughs> now, Evan, the most important question of them all, how would somebody who wants to work with you get in touch with you? Well, the most, e the easiest way, certainly you can find me on all of the social media channels. Um, I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok, um, obviously Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, our website, walshteam.com, is, uh, is another easy way. Or you can pick up the phone. You can call me, 508-341-4904. Uh, um, I'm happy to text. I'm happy to talk. I love what I do, and, you know, I love to help you. So those are, uh, those are sort of the easy things uh, or easy ways to get in touch with me and just, you know, know that I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to people. Um, you know, cause even if you're not selling right away and maybe it's, you know, it's a two or three year process, um, let's talk about, you know, what types of things do we need to do now to prepare you for the future? And, and those are, uh, those are all things I like to help people with. So. You love what you do and you're in it for the long game, which is, which is amazing. Evan Walsh, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Awesome. Thank you very much, Mark. It was uh, great to uh, great to be with you and great to talk to all your all your fans. We will see you soon, my friends. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Securitidal. Securitidal helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Securitidal, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.